The Leach Report Radio Network is on the air with the voice of the Wildcats, Tom Leach. This is where the Big Blue Nation comes for the latest news and views on the Cats. The show is served up by Wild Eggs of Lexington. Interact with the show now by tweeting at Leach Report or email leachreport at gmail.com. Call us at 877-904-1080. Now, the voice of your Wildcats, Tom Leach. Hey, everybody, welcome in. Chilly Friday edition of the Leach Report from the Clark's Pump and Shop Studio here in Lexington. And we have a busy show lined up for you today as the Cats get said to head, uh, head down to Tennessee tomorrow. Uh, the game will be on CBS at 1 Eastern time. We'll have a call on the UK radio network with pregame coverage starting at 11.30 a.m. Eastern. And the man who will be on the call as he was last Saturday for Kentucky and Auburn, is Ian Eagle, and he'll lead us off on the show today. Uh, he'll be uh, working the game with Jim Spinarkle. Larry Vaught's going to jump on for a few minutes to talk about uh, his story, which he caught up to Dante Allen's grandmother, um, and we'll talk about that coming up uh, for a few minutes. And then Mike DeCourcy from the Sporting News and other outlets uh, joins us every Friday to talk college basketball. So that's our guest lineup as we roll into the Wildcat news of the day. Rematch for the Cats and the Vols tomorrow in Knoxville. Kentucky lost in Lexington 82-71, getting outscored by 13 in the final 10 minutes. And Kentucky, around the, I think it was around the 12-minute mark, spurted out to a 10-point lead, and Tennessee then just turned to its two freshmen, uh, guards Keon Johnson and Jaden Springer, and they combined to score 50 points for the game, most of them in those final 12 minutes when Tennessee took control of the game. And Kentucky uh, just could not stop those two. Now, a couple of other things from the box score. Uh, Isaiah Jackson was a non-factor in the game. He only played 11 minutes, and you may remember in the days that follow when Cal was asked about it, he said that Isaiah just I can't remember the exact phrase, but basically didn't bring it that night. And he said when he and Isaiah watched the tape, uh, Isaiah recognized that. Uh, It's the only game I think all season he didn't have a block shot. So he is playing his best basketball of the season, back-to-back double figures for the first time all year, challenging shots, rebounding well. So uh, and a uh, similar performance to what we've seen lately from Isaiah Jackson could make a big difference for Kentucky. Uh, Also, Mintz, Boston, and Jackson combined for just 14 points in that game. Uh, those three guys have been scoring at a considerably higher level as Kentucky has played better of late, and so one would think they would need more production out of them. Keon Brooks had the big game for Kentucky with 23. The other thing that was uh, noteworthy, Kentucky was 4 of 17 at the three-point line. It's the only time since the Georgia game when they started shooting more threes that they've been outscored at the three-point line. And it was only by one. Uh, Tennessee had five, but it was the fewest three-point attempts for Kentucky. So um, what they've effectively done, and uh, Sean Vinsel at Hoops Insight uh, written about this, and uh, you can uh, check his uh, latest post out there. We'll get him on the show again uh, sometime soon. But he, um, it, what Kentucky is, they're not shooting really a higher overall field goal percentage, but they're taking more threes, making more threes, so their effective field goal percentage is better. In other words, the shots they are making are getting more points for them. That's why part of why they improved. It's uh, just some, some math 
that has uh, fueled this and a uh, you know better execution um, guys not turning down open threes etc so uh, we'll talk about uh, all of this with our guests as we move through the show today uh, last night uh, number six Houston got upset 68 63 by Wichita State and there was a matchup of top 25s Number 11, Iowa beat number 21, Wisconsin, uh, on the Badgers home court, 77 to 62. So Iowa's, when they're good, they're really good, but they've been a little up and down. But last night was one of the really good nights. Kyle Tucker caught up with Davion Mintz's dad, uh, talking about, uh, Davion's clutch shooting and also, and it's a good read. You should check out at the athletic about the, the backstory on, on Davion as a clutch player from way, way back. Uh, but also, toward the end of the story, he asked uh, Davian's dad about uh, Davian maybe returning for another season, and he acknowledged that it's, quote, on the table, and the chance to finish work on a master's degree would be a, a big motivating factor if Mintz would decide to take advantage of an extra year of eligibility for the Cats. Links to the stories that we talk about, you find them on the Bud Light Leach Report page at TomLeachKY.com. Our show is served up by Wild Eggs of Lexington. Ian Eagle joins the program when we come right back here on the Leach Report Radio Network. It's the Leach Report on Talk Radio 1080. Tweet us at Leach Report or email leachreport at gmail.com. We go to the KentuckyHempWorks.com hotline. Bring on Ian Eagle from CBS. He and Jim Spinark will be on the call tomorrow in Knoxville for Kentucky and Tennessee. And uh, Ian, you got to look at the Cats last week in a, uh, a win against Auburn that was a bit of a breakthrough in terms of uh, in getting the victory in a, in a close game. Um, I'm sure you were, you know, looking at some of earlier Kentucky when you were preparing for last week's game. What's the uh, the improvement that you're seeing in Kentucky from earlier to now? Yeah, just a, a confidence about themselves, how they carry themselves, uh, the sense, Tom, that if you get into a close game, you can actually make plays to win the game as opposed to have things go the other way on you. Just more confidence in shooting. Brandon Boston, uh, are you going Brandon or BJ? Because I've been told either is acceptable. Yeah, but, I think we use the uh, the nickname, uh, the initials mostly. Okay, well uh, then, then that that's what I shall do tomorrow. <laughs> uh, BJ Boston, uh, just shooting the, the ball better. Uh, to me, it, it looks like Isaiah Jackson has realized, hey, you can go do it yourself. Take over in spots where it's available to you. Uh, Davion Mintz, who uh, anyone I talk to connected with Kentucky will tell you that he's been rock solid the whole season, so leaning on him a bit. Uh, there's talent there. The the one thing that, that stands out to me, and this is not to knock anybody, it's just the reality of the situation. I've been doing this forever. I've been doing Kentucky games for a long time, and they've always had, or at least seemingly, uh, an NBA-type lead guard that they could depend upon and could get them out of trouble or could end a run or could take over during a stretch. And that's just not the reality on this team. That, to me, is it's what's missing from this group. The record may look a whole lot different if one particular position had the kind of NBA talent that they've grown accustomed to under Calipari. Well, they were 
thought they had a great shot at Cade Cunningham, and he ended up at Oklahoma State with his brother, and they uh, were the in it to the end with Sharif Cooper. Yep. Either one of those two guys could make a big difference. There's no doubt. I, I, I think the games speak for themselves. And Devin Askew is being asked to, to do what he does, which is set the table and not make big mistakes. The issue is whether or not he can do the things that Kentucky has needed a lead guard to do in previous iterations of this team. So, uh, again, I'm parachuting in, parachuting out, but that's what has stood out to me. That, that's been the clear void on this partic- particular Kentucky s- squad. You know, it's it's like it's a little like a maybe an NFL comparison. You uh, are around that league a lot. Uh, the you know, an, an Aaron Rodgers, uh, Patrick Mahomes versus the uh, dreaded game manager tag sure. of a quarterback. Yeah, and and sometimes you can win a Super Bowl with a game manager and, if you, you know, have enough around them. Stories, right? The Baltimore Ravens and Trent Dilfer, and he just didn't make the big mistakes, and eventually they decided to go in a different direction because they thought they could improve that position. It was Elvis Gerback. That didn't really work out. They didn't rip off multiple Super Bowl titles. So what they had worked for them. And there are teams that that will work, that you don't need a bona fide NBA star at that lead guard position. This particular team, it, it it's screaming for that because the other pieces really do seem to be in place. And in this unusual college basketball season, Tom, uh, who gets hot at the right time, who emerges with the the perfect amount of chemistry in what's going to be a very different NCAA tournament. It's not going to be the same experience. It's not going to be what it's been like in the past. And with no fans as part of it, uh, you don't have that stimuli either. So, uh, I think Kentucky still probably holds out hope that they could maybe go on a run here and and somehow get themselves to the party. Well, uh, you know, Cal has his uh, talking points. I've said this week the the one for me is I went back and looked and I was a little surprised to find that his 2018 team was six and seven in the league at this point, and you could go back to his first Final Four team um, was seven and six, one game different, and. Both of those teams, especially the 2011, you know, found it down the stretch. Now, Brandon Knight's not walking through that door, as the saying goes. No. But, no. Um, you know, there's still time to make a run. Yeah, and just because of how peculiar everything is, uh, what we used to think of this type of uh, run in a regular season, normal season, is thrown out the window. Uh, because of the way the conference tournaments are going to be set up, because of the way that the league was played this year, uh, you don't necessarily know what you've got until you get to the biggest moments. There are other seasons where uh, you've you've played a non-conference schedule, a, a real one. You've gone into tough arenas with fans and seen your team either hold up or wilt. You don't have any feel for that this year. So, of course, we're we're doing everything that we would normally do in trying to assess teams and trying to project teams, but the formula is not what it was, and we have to at least recognize that when you start making these these very strong statements in late February about what's going to happen in March, I'm I'm going to tell you I don't know. I know those are not words that we're accustomed to in radio and television when it comes to sports, but this year. I don't know how all of this is going to play out. 
Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Cal has said uh, on more, more than one occasion he hasn't gone through anything like this since his uh, earliest days at, at UMass. And as a college coach, that's true. But he did go through some of the struggles in his stint in the NBA when you were calling the games then. So I'm just curious to you what you see in, you know, in Cal, uh, how he was, you know, how he was managing that, uh, those rough waters then and what you see now. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I see some similarities, but he's different. He's obviously older, more experienced. He's got the, the moniker Hall of Famer next to his name. And at that time, he was still trying to prove things and prove things to NBA players that he knew what he was doing and he knew how to coach and he knew how to put uh, a team together. He had so much responsibility with that organization at that time. I wonder you know, if he could go back and, and redo it if if he might have made some changes and delegated in in certain areas. Uh, With that said, uh, it was rough. When he got there, the team was not very good. And then they found a little something. Uh, They went to the playoffs. They got the 8th seed. They actually gave the Chicago Bulls with Michael Jordan a nice little push in the first round of the playoffs that year. And everyone thought, okay, here it is. It's going to start happening. And then the lockout hit and they fell apart. Uh, The team fell apart. And John paid the price for it, got fired. Uh, I think he would tell you it was a low point in his coaching career. He just wasn't used to it, wasn't used to failure. That was not a word that was in his vocabulary. And he had to uh, go back and start over in many ways. Look, he could have gotten a college job right away. He was highly coveted, but he didn't want to do that. He ended up in Philadelphia. He ended up working with Larry Brown, who uh, has been a mentor to him, and then put the pieces back together by going to Memphis, building a legitimate team, and taking the biggest job in college basketball or among the biggest jobs with Kentucky, and, and we know how it all worked out. But uh, he, he, was, he was definitely confused back in the day that, Uh, It wasn't working. He was confounded over the fact that his methodology was not was not happening at the level that he thought it would in the NBA. And and it threw him off a bit. Quick question here. We'll let you go. Uh, You uh, I know a proud papa of a rising star in uh, the broadcasting business. Your son, Noah, voice of the Clippers. But he also worked that NBA or excuse me, the NFL playoff game that was on Nickelodeon. What was that like for him? Oh, he had a blast. Uh, we we talked prior to it, and I didn't want to inundate him with a hundred things to think about. So I just gave him three tenants to try to keep in his head. One was, hey, this is a different kind of broadcast. Uh, have command over what it is they want you to do. And it's not treating it like a normal NFL on CBS broadcast. The tone has to be set early that this is going to be unique. Secondly, be a really good traffic cop and point guard. Make sure everybody touches the ball. Make sure that you're keeping uh, almost a a score in your own head. If somebody isn't getting a touch, include them. Involve them. Make sure it's interactive and uh, make sure the interaction is high. And then third, I said, just have a lot of fun. This is so different, so cool, and uh, he really... Checked every box, and Nate Burleson is a superstar, and the two kids from Nickelodeon were 
were awesome, Gabby and Lex, and, and it all worked out. And, and we know, Tom, in our business, it's rare that something is universally <laughs> well-received. So I also told him after the fact, like, hey, chalk this one up to the perfect storm, because uh, it doesn't usually go that swimmingly. Yeah, all the reviews were, were great, uh, and so I uh, was, uh, was happy for, for him and for you. So uh, sorry yeah. we won't get to uh, cross paths tomorrow, but hopefully somewhere down the road. Yeah, I hope so, Tom. All the best. Uh, I know you guys are, are holding it down under uh, different, unique circumstances, so keep doing your thing at the level that you do it. You're, you're great. You're the best. Same to you, sir. Thank you much. See you, bud. It's Ian Eagle. You'll hear him on the call with Jim Spinarkle tomorrow on CBS. On the television side, we'll be right back. A quick visit with Larry Vaught when we come right back. This is the Leach Report on Talk Radio 1080. You can follow Tom on Twitter. It's at Tom Leach KY. You may have heard about a social media post from uh, someone that uh, claimed to be Dante Allen's uncle, saying he would urge him to transfer. This was after the uh, game the other night. Dante didn't play much down at Vandy. Uh, Larry Vaught joins us, says, Larry caught up to Dante's grandmother. And rather than me try to explain it all, I thought I'd get you to come on and just tell us what she told you. Well, well, I didn't actually catch up to her time. I just took her post that she made on on Facebook, social media. And since I didn't, I do know for a thousand percent that is his grandmother and it wasn't even really need to have anything other than what she said there where she made it really obvious that the person who was making the post claiming to be dante's uncle was nobody that the family family knew and that the family was a hundred percent behind dante and uk and that's why it surprised me so when i saw the post or the comment from somebody in his family urging him to transfer because two things one that is never even if it's going to happen that is never something dante allen would want posted before after or any time during a season that's just not him and then everybody i've ever talked to connected with with him and his family or close friends has never mentioned anything like that to me that dante i think it's going to be i think will be one of those kids like dominique hawkins or Derek willis it's here for the duration we'll try to keep fighting trying to improve and get what playing time that he can get and be ready when he's called on and believe that the longer he stays, the bigger his role will get. So just a little way to kind of clarify that. And that was definitely, I mean, I, I can vouch that is his grandmother. <laughs> so that way we, don't, we don't have to guess who it is. But we know it's her. Larry. Putting that to rest. Thanks for clearing it up. We appreciate it. We'll talk to you Tuesday. All right, Tom. Mike DeCarsi when we come right back. It's the Leach Report on Talk Radio 1080. Coming up next, it's Kentucky Sports Radio with Matt Jones. From the Clark's Pump and Shop Studio, it's the second half of the Leach Report for Friday as we bring in Mike DeCourcy. You read him at SportingNews.com. See him doing the bracket analysis for Fox Sports' college basketball coverage. And you can find him on the Big Ten Network, too. And he joins us every Friday. And uh, Wildcats showing a little life here in... uh, the last month of the season, Mike? Yeah, I think that their improvement has been a pleasant development, especially in light of this week's events uh, with uh, Jalen Johnson leaving Duke and and focusing, uh, opting out and all that and focusing on the NBA draft as if it's like it's not February and the draft is in June. And uh, it, it, Instead of all of that, uh, basically saying, this isn't working for me, I'm walking away, 
all of Kentucky's players have continued to work hard at that. And I, I know this is not what a Wildcats fan dreams a season to be. But one of the things that shows the value of this program and how it operates is the fact that those players have continued to compete hard almost without exception. I mean, there have been, you know, there, there was the Georgia Tech game way back when, and I, there may have been one other since. But for the most part, uh, the vast majority of these games, they've continued to compete hard all the way through. And you've seen improvements from individual players, Isaiah Jackson. You've seen significant improvement from B.J. Boston. You've seen uh, Davion Mintz grow into a big-time shot maker at the end of games. I mean, he has no fear under really difficult circumstances. And, and I think all of that has been impressive to see, even in what is obviously not a successful season. They, uh, in the U.K. notes, they uh, accurately point out they've never had their entire roster together this season, when Terrence Clark was playing, Keon Brooks wasn't. By the time Keon came back, uh, Terrence was out. Now we may not see Terrence a- at all this season, and so it's it's certainly taken a while for Cal to find his rotation. But it seems like it, right now he has settled in. He's got six guys, uh, which is a starting group, and then Keon off the bench, and then there's going to be a seventh guy. And most often, it, lately, it's been Jacob Toppin. I think there'll be given games where it could be Dante Allen or Lance Ware. And then the, the eighth and the ninth guys will play a little bit. But uh, he has, uh, I think, finally found a rotation that seems to be working and they're uh, being able to increase their level of execution. Exactly. And and I think that that, that comes from the, the, the core players continuing to perform at a really high level and and continuing to develop and them gaining trust from the coaches and earning trust from the coaches. Uh, uh, you still see mistakes made. But you don't. You don't get to seven and thirteen without making mistakes. Uh, but you have. You have seen a significant growth in 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 those individual players and in their trust among each other, and in their in the ability of particular players to take on certain responsibilities. And I, I think that that's all helped to make this team more successful going down the stretch. And I, 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 I do, I do believe that they will be the kind of team that, when you get to the conference tournament, will be a team, will be an opponent that no one has any interest in playing. Because those who, if there are any bubble type teams in the in the SEC, by the time we get to that stage, and at this point, I don't think I have anybody other than Ole Miss truly in that range. They're either in or they're out. Yes. You're not likely to want to play Kentucky because they're not going to do a ton for you on the, in terms of, hey, you know, we just beat them. Look at, look at, that makes our resume better. Uh, but they can beat you. I mean, there's no question. We, we've seen them beat a lot of the better teams uh, in the league, and we've seen them even in games when they still weren't fully formed. I mean, the, the, the Kansas game being the most obvious example, where one of the top, 25 or 30 teams in the country was behind with five minutes left, uh, five and a half minutes left, and really had to, had to had to really step out of what it had done in that game by making three threes in the final five and a half minutes to, to, to be able to win. You One of your latest pieces at SportingNews.com is about the potential for teams to opt out of conference tournaments. And the headline says the impact could linger beyond this season and the uh, current pandemic that everybody's dealing with. Uh, what's your take on this? 
certain certain leagues have in their bylaws if you're eligible you're playing and if you don't then i don't i presume that the penalty for that is uh you don't get the money uh or something like that or you you know whatever it might be or uh you get censured or whatever the, whatever the penalty is but there are certain leagues i don't know though out of the 32 conferences which ones have that and which ones don't um it's you know it it's but beyond that, it, presuming that anyone has the ab- ability to opt out if they wish, it, 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 if they if they were to opt out it, it, in this circumstance, it, I, I, everyone that I spoke to for the for the article said they understand the trepidation, because especially if you're a team that that is in the position where you know you're going to the tournament, and if you look at Gonzaga as an example, because there was a report. From a, bat, from, a, from a columnist in Portland, Oregon, John Canzano, who's a terrific uh, columnist and who's very well-connected in basketball out west, that said that both Gonzaga and BYU were considering opting out of the West Coast Conference Tournament because they both felt they were in, and, and the downside outweighed the upside. And the, the problem with that is that if you are doing it this year to avoid COVID, What's to stop you to, from doing it next year when you're standing there uh, as a one seed or, you know, as a lock one seed or a lock two seed or whatever from just saying, you know what, our team's not that healthy. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll sit this one out too. And the problem with that is that there's a financial incentive to do it beyond the whatever competitive or health incentive there is to not play. There's a financial incentive because if you are clearly in Gonzaga's shoes or in Houston's shoes this year, you're you're going to make the tournament, and if you don't compete in your conference championship, there's a chance that someone who ordinarily would not get a bid will take that bid that that automatic bid that you vacated by not competing for it, and that's that's not fair to the competition. That that's not fair to everyone else that's trying to get in. For you to say, well, this is worth a lot of money to our conference, and it's worth a, a good bit of rest for us, so let's do that. And that's that. That's something that uh, the NCAA, when when they had their bracket reveal, they were asked about it. I don't remember whether it was Clark Kellogg or Seth Davis asked the question during during the the period uh, following that reveal. Uh, but Dan Gavitt said that the committee had discussed the issue of opt-outs and had, and, and had settled on encouraging schools to compete if they are eligible because they, they don't have it in their bylaws to say, if you don't do this and you mess with the composition of our field, we're, we're not letting you in or we're knocking you down five seed lines or whatever. It's not They don't have that capacity now. They may have to, to consider whether that should be policy. Uh, but it, it, it really does have the ability, it, it, and I don't think this is true of Gonzaga or BYU. I think the honest-to-goodness truth about about their, the, the conversation that they're having regarding that is to try to get the tournament moved out of Las Vegas. I think they'd like to have it on their campus site. They've, they've figured out how to have their conference season without much disruption except in a few schools. So... Gonzaga and BYU, I think, would like to just say, look, you want to play this thing, come play in our gym, we'll beat you, you'll go home, and, and we'll put it on TV. I, I think that's what they're trying to do. But they, if, if you did have the opt-outs, it would create, it, it would create the, the scenario in which teams would have the ability to say, this is worth a lot of money to our league, 
and it's and it's it's what I feel is best for our team. So we'll just sit this one out. I, I, I think that would be a very bad look for college basketball. We chat with Mike DeCourcy. We'll take a quick break, come back, and uh, get another segment in on this Friday edition of the Leach Report. We're served up by Wild Eggs of Lexington in Hamburg and in Palomar. They still have their heated patio seating up and running and a new online ordering system so you can order curbside pickup. You can also uh, order with DoorDash, too, for Wild Eggs of Lexington. You're tuned to Talk Radio 1080 and The Leach Report. And visit TomLeachKY.com for more news and views on the cats. At 13 away from the top of the hour, it's The Leach Report Radio Network. And Mike DeCourcy is visiting with us on the KentuckyHempWorks.com hotline. And if you follow at TSN Mike on Twitter, you know that he was right there in the Hallelujah Chorus with many of you uh, decrying the uh, wiping out of the spectacular Keon Brooks dunk late the other night in the Kentucky Vandy win. Uh, I know you and I have talked many times that we don't like the fact. It's not that the officials uh, necessarily call it wrong. It's that the, the the rules or the point of emphasis with officials is such that that play is rewarded is the problem. Yeah, that's that's where the, that's what the core of it is, the heart of it is. But when when you are having to advance into a position to get – legal, as they call it, legal guarding position, when you are having to advance out of the charge circle at the last second while the offensive player is literally launching himself, and launching does not begin at the time the foot leaves the ground. That's not, I mean, that's not, that's not physics. That's not, you know, that's not uh, biology. It doesn't happen when you leave the ground because you have to, you ha- in order to jump, you have to use your uh, lower body to elevate yourself. So the act of jumping that Keon engaged in at that point, when he begins to jump, he doesn't have any choice but to jump. I mean, there is no other option. So the idea that if I run in there just at the last second and I'm and I hop in while you are while your toe is on the ground but everything else says you are jumping, that's a charge is complete garbage. He was never legal, because if he was legal, he wouldn't have had to hop at the last second. You have to be in front of the player while he, you know, while he is advancing the ball to be legal. You can't just come in at the last second. I, they, I have had people try to tell me that he, was, that he was in legal guarding position, but I don't buy that at all. He has to be there. You can't just get there while the other player is, is in the process of making a move that is irretrievable. It's it, it, when when 2013-14 John Adams was the coordinator of officials, and and the, he and the rules committee tried to get the the charge rule changed so that when the player begins gathering uh, the ball off the floor, that you had if you wanted to be legal, you had to be legal then. In that case, under those circumstances, it would have clearly been an and one for Keon. But in this case. It's not just a question of the gather. He is literally, he has passed the gather. He is now at the point where he is launching himself. And even if his toe hasn't left the ground when you happen to jump in front of him, he is, he is in the process of elevating. So I, I don't buy the idea that you can pop in at the last second, and that's exactly what happened. And I believe the player shifted his body weight to, tr- to try to stay in front as well. 
I don't buy at all that that was an offensive foul. If you want to no-call that, I'm totally fine with that. Yeah, If you say you know, contact happened, um, that's, that's fine. But I don't, I, there, under no circumstance did Keon commit a violation of the rules in that circumstance. And, and, and what's dis- disappointing is that one of the really cool dunks of the season gets wiped out because the official feels compelled to have to enforce that rule to what he believes the letter of the law to be. Let's shift gears to Kentucky-Tennessee tomorrow in the rematch of a game from two weeks ago that really turned when Tennessee just uh, turned loose their two freshman guards to relentlessly uh, drive the ball and, and turn the game around. What does Kentucky need to do to turn the result around tomorrow? Well, I think the first thing they have to do is, even though they have won the last two games, they are they still did not manage the the final five minutes as well as as you would hope they those games became closer than they needed to be i'm not always i'm not always harsh on a team for allowing a a a significant lead to get narrower uh at the end because i understand the dynamics of if if you are behind certain things that you do like take three-point shots uh, are now empowered and certain things that, and that, and that becomes a negative for the offense because, uh, for, for the leading team, I should say, because a three point shot is, le- is less likely to go in and it's also more likely to create long rebounds that can become quick buckets for the opposition. So I understand that as long as you finish, that's good. But we're talking about, uh, two games in a row on top of all the games that they, they struggled in and fell. So they have to manage the last five minutes well if they're in good position uh, to be able to win. I think the second thing that they have to do is they have to try to stagnate uh, the, the Tennessee offense. Uh, that, I, I, it's, a, it's an offense that sometimes can really struggle. And you've got to be, you, you, so you've got to make it, make it hard for them to get their offense started. Uh, hard hard, hard to, for them to, to feel any comfort. And I think at times Tennessee, excuse me, at times Kentucky has been good at that. Uh, not as much uh, in the, uh, you know, at times in the second half of, against Vandy, uh, not as much uh, at times in the first half against Auburn. Uh, but they, they have had moments, uh, like against Missouri, where they made it difficult, uh, against uh, Alabama, even in the loss, uh, where they made it difficult for Alabama to run its offense. So I think that's... Uh, that, that's, that's a team that can be fractured. They have had some really poor offensive games. So if your defense is sturdy, you can cause problems for them. Yeah, it's, uh, as you look at their worksheet, the last six games they've scored in the wins, 80, 82, 89, and 93, in the losses, 50 and 65. So that's quite a difference. <laughs> it really is. It's hard to figure exactly what it is uh, that, that causes them to struggle as much at times on offense as they do, but I think – a, a good bit of it is excellent defense making it less comfortable for them. They, they, offense doesn't come naturally to that team to begin with. Uh, it's not they, they, they are they are a natural defensive team. They they really guard you well. Uh, so you have to make the offense struggle. You have to make it uncomfortable, and then and and that will keep you in the game and give you a chance to win. Yeah, the game here in Lexington is just it became really pretty easy for them, and I'm sure then their confidence is buoyed because of that when you just give it to one of these two guys and let them go. Right. 
exactly. And that's probably an, an approach they should take more often. They're very talented players. Uh, their, their front court can be a little inconsistent offensively. And so they probably should give more freedom to the young guards. Uh, they, they, and, and maybe that's something that they're getting toward now, but, uh, they, as you can see, it's not, it's not been a consistent pattern. Mike DeCourcy, thank you much. Thank you, Tom. Always a pleasure. You read him at sportingnews.com. Uh, his bracket analysis is at, uh, Fox Sports, which you can see on their coverage, or if you follow him at TSN Mike, he posts the bracket. And then on the Big Ten Network, too. And he joins us every Friday here on The Leach Report. And we will wrap up this edition of the show when we come right back. This day in Wildcat history presented by the new Rave On app. And it is an app that you can uh, get and share the game experience, the UK game experience with your friends to comment on calls like we were doing with Mike DeCourcy or to uh, talk about big plays. This day in 1973, Kentucky won at Georgia 99 to 86. Kevin Greavy scored 40, the first sophomore to go for 40 or more in a game for Kentucky since Bill Spivey had done it back in the 50s. Question from one of our listeners, uh, Matt, any word on rescheduling the South Carolina game? Uh, what I've heard is that it's it's likely Kentucky will play uh, another game uh, on that weekend, so two weeks uh, from this weekend, um, but not necessarily guaranteed that it would be South Carolina because the Gamecocks have lost several games uh, to uh, COVID, so they're trying to get as you know for every league team to play as many games as possible. So uh, I'd say there's probably a pretty good chance Kentucky will have a game. I uh, don't know that it's guaranteed that it would be against uh, South Carolina, however. So we'll uh, we'll see, but I would uh, think there'll probably be a game that weekend. Uh, no U.K. women's game today. They had pushed back the LSU game for a day because of uh, travel issues for LSU, but uh, they've just decided to go ahead and uh, call it off for now. Uh, I think there's a chance that could be made up. We'll see. So the U.K. women's next game will be Sunday at South Carolina, and hated to see the news about our buddies Jeff Pecoro and Doug Flynn not returning to the Reds network. Uh, bad news there. Two great guys who are tremendous at their job. So, um, wish them well, and we'll see you guys on Monday for the Leach Report. Facebook page. If you have a question for Tom, email it to